I'm Jethro Jones from Transformative Principle, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of the individual hosts. Make sure you check out the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. And get ready because the learning begins in three, two, one. Good everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. I'm your host, Greg Goins, and my special guest today is Dr. Todd Whitaker, one of the nation's leading authorities on staff motivation, teacher leadership, and principal effectiveness. Recognized as a leading presenter in the field of education, Dr. Whitaker has written over 50 books, including the national bestseller, What Great Teachers Do Differently. Among his other popular books are What Great Principals Do Differently, Shifting the Monkey, Leading School Change, and Dealing with Difficult Parents. He's also the co-author of Your First Year, How to Survive and Thrive as a New Teacher, with his daughters Madeline and Catherine, who are both outstanding teachers in their own right in the state of Missouri. Todd and his wife Beth both currently serve as faculty members within the Ed Leadership Program at the University of Missouri, and each bring with them extensive experience as former classroom teachers, and highly successful building principals throughout their careers in P-12 education. It was a tremendous honor to spend some time with Dr. Todd Whitaker, and I hope you find this episode both engaging and inspiring as we think about how we can create better schools for kids. As always, thanks for listening, and be sure to share out this episode on social media with the Reimagined Schools hashtag. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Dr. Greg Goins, and follow the podcast at RS Podcast. You can also find all episodes on our website at reimaginedschools.net. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Todd Whitaker. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. I have another wonderful show for you today. It's a tremendous honor to welcome in one of the global leaders in school leadership as he's an author and speaker uh, all over the world, a very highly respected person, Dr. Todd Whitaker. How are you, Todd? I'm doing great, Greg. Thank you so much for the opportunity to come and uh, have a chance to chat with you. I've always uh, referred to you as one of the hardest working people in the field of education. Every time I pick up my Twitter feed, you're in a new city, a new venue, a new place, and people love to have their picture taken with Todd Whitaker. So you have any idea how many places you've been in 2018? No, I don't. I, I think people like their picture taken with me because they look better when they're next to me because that's, that's all a comparative, you know? Um, so, uh, uh, no, I would guess I probably speak, uh, maybe 75 places a year ballpark. Uh, but it, it just, I, I really never count them. Mm-hmm. And so I really don't know. And, and what happens is I'll get an opportunity. Somebody's gracious enough to ask me and then somebody else that's near them asks me. So it's like, well, I might as well, since I'm in that area or since I'm, and so, but I'm very, I'm blessed. I, you know, you mentioned I'm one of the hardest working people. I don't work for a living. The principals and teachers and superintendents work for a living. I travel for a living, and that's not near as hard as working for a living, let me tell you. 
Well, that's not necessarily true because as a fellow professor, I know that you have a long and distinguished career at Indiana State University there in the Ed Leadership Program. Now you're a professor emeritus there. And now you're at University of Missouri, which I know is near and dear to your heart. Yeah, very. I actually went there and it's a blessing. My two daughters teach in Missouri and uh, we've been in Indiana for 22 years and we're so fortunate at Indiana State. Uh, my wife and I were both uh, tenured professors there and she actually now uh, at University of Missouri is the coordinator of the principal superintendent preparation program and I kind of am a part-time nobody in the program. And so it's really nice because I work for her at work and work for her at home. So it's kind of a neat combination. That's a win-win for you, right? For her. <laughs> for her, yeah. Yeah, well, anyone who's had the chance to, to hear you speak or, or uh, whether it's in person or one of the interviews you've done, know that you have a wonderful sense of humor. And, and I've heard you say before that laughter is a gateway to emotion. Why do you think humor is so important in trying to connect with people, which you do so very well? Um, well, you're kind about that. I, I really am just in the self-entertainment business. So I think I'm funny, even if nobody else does. Nobody in my family thinks I'm funny, but I think I'm dang funny. Um, but it really does. I think it takes away some of the inhibitions. Um, you know, I, I used to coach, so this is not a personal thing. It's just the kind of colloquialism we'd share. Somehow I've got to get the coaches in the back row engaged too. And I think that what happens is as you laugh, as you feel comfortable, as you connect with people, then they're more willing to be disclosers, more willing to listen to ideas and concepts. And I think that that's kind of where that comes from. And you've had so much success with, with your books. Uh, you've written over 50 books now. And most people probably know you from what I would call the Differently series, what great teachers do differently, what great principals do differently, what connected educators do differently. Had great success with a book entitled Shifting the Monkey. My personal favorite is probably Leading School Change. Uh, and I know you uh, just released the second edition of that. And the name of that book, if you want to check it out, folks, is Leading School Change, How to Overcome Resistance, Increase Buy-In, and accomplish your goals. And, and that's kind of what this podcast is about. And, and of course, I want to get into that and get your thoughts about leading change. But in a roundabout way, all your books really have a central theme. And that is as a leader, these are strategies to get people to do what you need them to do to be successful. Right, exactly. It's, it's, it's how to influence other people. Um, what's interesting is it's really nothing to do with being a principal or an administrator. Think about this. I, the best advice I ever got as a principal was you don't have to prove who's in charge. Everybody knows who's in charge. And the more you try to prove it, the more people try to prove you wrong. The same things, think about it in a classroom. The best teacher in a school, how often does he or she try to prove who's in charge in that classroom? Never. Everybody knows it. The worst teacher, how often does he or she try to prove who's in charge in that classroom? About 20 times an hour, and there's 25 kids trying to prove them wrong. One way to think about this in any situation is Anytime you use power, you lose power. And so I don't have any interest in telling people what to do. It's helping them understand they can accomplish their goals by doing the, their, their own personal goals by doing the right thing more than they can in some other way. And I know you have a coaching background, a teaching background, but the thing that really jumped off the page with me is you were a principal at age 25. And I've also heard you say that it's okay to be afraid but it's not necessarily okay to show people that you're afraid or scared in situations in which you're the person that people are looking to for leadership. Sure. An example is um, one of the things I used to do with new teachers, my girls and I wrote a book called your first year for first year teachers. So we do a lot with newer teachers. And one of the things I think about is, is uh, 
and this is just one of those things I assumed every principal in the world did it. And when I find out they all don't, it's, it's really stunning to me. Why would I ever want a new teacher to call a phone, a parent? I'm talking about a, a negative phone call. I'm not talking about an introduction before the year starts. I'm glad to have your son or daughter. Why would you ever want a teacher to call a negative, call a parent that's potentially a negative phone call without them hearing you call parents, without you role playing with them, without you helping them with the language? I used to bring new teachers in and I'd save three or four of my most challenging parents and I'd bring new teachers in to let them hear me call the parent. I wanted to know what you say, how you start it. But the other thing I wanted them to see is it may not go exactly right, but I'm not going to be rattled. I'm not going to lose my cool. I'm not going to be upset. And, and I wanted them to see that because I don't, I think it's easy to tell people, but when they see you do it, I think it means a lot more. And so I didn't want them to see me be afraid of calling parents. That doesn't mean it always went well, but, and sometimes I'm going, boy, man, alive, they're a goofball or whatever, you know, after the phone call. But I, I wanted them to see me do that because I wanted them to see we're not going to be afraid here in the school in terms of contacting parents, in terms of dealing, doing the right thing. We don't, I don't want us to be afraid. And that also goes with, with your idea, and I've heard you say this many times, that there's a huge difference between establishing expectations versus correcting behavior. And you always give the example of, you know, you're a, new, you're a new administrator, you're working in the office, and the secretary asks you, you know, how do you want me to answer the phone, Dr. Whitaker? And that's one of those pivotal times as a new leader where you're going to have a tremendous impact in the answer that you give. And I, I'll be honest with you, I think as a new leader, I'm not waiting for him to ask. I, I want to teach him from the beginning. And, and the reason's really simple. The better that clerical person is, the office worker receptionist, I don't mean to get into gender terms here because I don't know what different places call them. So insert your own words. The better they are, the more they want to know. I always say, and it sounds kind of funny, did you know that, that receptionist, that, that office worker, that clerical person, whatever they are, did you know they want to know how you want them to answer the phone? And the better they are, the more they want to know. Because the better they are, the more they want to please you. They want to know how you want them to answer the phone until they answer the phone. Once they answer the phone, they don't want to know because now you're correcting their behaviors. And I don't want to do that. I want to, everybody can play a dang game. You just want to know what the rules are. And you want to know the rules before the game starts. You don't have any interest in knowing the rules once the game starts. You feel like you've been betrayed then. And, you know, I, I talk about this a lot on, on the podcast. I spent 15 years as a school district superintendent in Illinois. I've been a high school principal, teacher, coach, athletic director. And there's this old saying that it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And as a young school administrator, I kind of bought into that philosophy early on. And in reality, and I, and I think you'll agree with this, uh, what you say does matter and may be the most important element of being an effective school leader because it's all in how you approach people and what you say to, say to people. And, and again, you give the example of, of being on an equal plane with everyone that you talk to. It can't be a great idea just because the guy with the big fancy office and the suit and tie is the one uh, you know, giving advice. You have to talk with people in a way in which they're going to buy in and find those ideas acceptable. I, I think that's true. Think about uh, sharing a concept if you're a school administrator, but it, the same thing applies if I'm, if I'm trying to influence my superintendent, my colleague, another principal, or my teacher, I approach them all exactly the same. Think about the difference between saying I, I'm a principal and I'm saying to a teacher, do you know something you should try? Do you know something that I used to do? You know what you're really saying? You're really saying, do you know something you're too stupid to have thought of yourself 
and I'm the only one that can provide you that guidance. Think about the difference between that saying that and saying, you know something I saw a teacher do one time? You know something somebody mentioned to me? You know, I was in a classroom the other day and I saw, when, how do you guys come up with this? Do you see how much more palatable that is, Greg? There's less defensiveness in there. And I always want us to keep this in mind. I really believe people do the best they know how. And if we teach them how better, they'll do better. And one example that I think applies to everyone, and this is how come I do so much stuff with classroom management. People think classroom management's old school, it's not. How many teachers in a typical school would be more effective and enjoy their jobs more if they were better at classroom management? Because it's, you know, it's, if we can't get the kids to do what we want, our job is so unfun. There's, there's nothing enjoyable about it. But think about this. If I could teach you how to manage the kids better, guess what every teacher in the world does, Greg? manages the kids better because it benefits them. If I could get you, if you have children, if I could help you get your children to behave better, you'd be all over it, wouldn't you? And that's not an insult that your kids aren't well behaved. It just means it just, it benefits you. It benefits them, but it really benefits you. And I think that's very important. And once, and the reason we don't teach people how typically is because we don't know how ourselves and they know it. No wonder they're afraid. They know you're afraid. And so that's kind of where that comes from. And you know, one of my big pet peeves as a, as a young administrator in evaluating teachers was when I walk into the room or walk by the room at any given time and I see the teacher sitting behind the desk and I automatically have these very negative feelings that they're too lazy, they're not putting forth effort and it wasn't until I heard you speak not too long ago this idea that that individual teacher may not be the best teacher in the building to begin with, but he or she is actually using that desk as a barrier between themselves as the kids because they're afraid of the kids. Oh, no question. And obviously, no situation is always true, but that situation is very much that way. Think about a situation where if I'm a principal, superintendent, teacher, it doesn't make any difference, and I'm dealing with a parent in person, you know, they're meeting in my classroom or in my office or wherever, or I'm meeting in their home. If we put a barrier, a desk, or a table between ourselves and them, we're doing it because out of fear. And believe me, they know it. They love that line in the sand, they know it. When you sit next to them as an equal, as a colleague, as a peer, what happens is they're more, much more likely to be the ones that are uncomfortable because they wanted you to hide behind that desk from them. And I think it's the same way in a classroom. But, but I don't tell teachers to get out from behind their desk. We have to teach them. Now, what should you do? Where should you stand? How should you do this? What if the kids do this? Think about this. I believe administrators have to be in classrooms every single day. Well, guess why administrators don't go in classrooms? I understand we're busy, but the other reason is we don't know what to do in the classroom. What if kids are misbehaving? Do I intervene? What if the teacher's sitting behind their desk? Do I say something or not say something? What if the teacher's doing whatever? And I would rather avoid it by staying in my office than going in the classroom and trying to improve it. And I don't mean you're only in classrooms to improve people, you're stroking and valuing and making them feel important, but we're not afraid of going in a classroom and things being exceptional. We're not afraid of calling the parent and the parent saying, you're the best principal I've ever known in my life. Thank you so much. I wish you'd get a raise. We're not afraid to call those parents, plus they don't exist, but we're not afraid of that. What we're afraid of are the negative situations, and we don't go in classrooms in case there's a negative situation. What do we do? And it's, it's fear. Fear keeps us from doing the right thing so much of the time. It's it's, uh, it's, it's just a, a continual barrier. So I'm talking with Dr. Todd Whitaker, and you can find uh, him on Twitter at Todd Whitaker, and his website is toddwhitaker.com. And uh, you certainly want to check it out. A lot of amazing books, a lot of great advice for not only school leaders, but uh, teachers, educators across the board. 
And so, Todd, I, I, this idea of what we have to do um, to change schools, and that's really kind of the, uh, the premise of this podcast, and, and the, the name of it, of course, is Reimagine Schools, this idea that we have a lot of dysfunction systematically uh, in our school systems. And, and I've been blessed to have some amazing guests on, on this podcast uh, this year, and everyone has a new great idea, and it, it's almost like we're all looking for the next silver bullet. What's it going to be? Is it more project-based learning? Do we need to dive into design thinking or deeper learning? Or, you know, what do we need to do next to kind of improve this uh, situation and make schools better for kids? And I've heard you say there's only two ways to improve a school. That is, one, to hire better teachers, or two, improve the ones you have. It's true. Um, now, again, if coming in with project-based learning causes a teacher to be more excited, more effective, put more thought into that, that improves that teacher. But you could also have a situation where there's a teacher that's more comfortable with kids in traditional rows, and they're exceptional at it. Why do I want them to change that then? And so it's much more individual. I'm also, Greg, and this is something that I can get all sorts of pushback on, I don't believe the world's falling apart in education. I don't believe that things are a disaster. I don't believe, that's somebody who has a, an agenda who's trying to get that drumbeat because they want to do something else. How many schools do we go into that there is incredible teaching and learning? But what happens, what we have to realize is everybody, even in any school, is not the same. There's a difference between the best teachers in any school and the least effective teachers in any school. There's a difference, much more of a difference in that than there is um, uh, some national educational problem that people love to just say. We know that from all the Gallup polls. Continually, people rate their school higher than the average school. And it doesn't matter when you're, where you're at. Even in a lower in a school that people would see as struggling, people typically still rate that school higher than the average school. And it's because they know that school. And then what else do they have? They're just hearing demons and voices and people who have an agenda who are trying to paint schools as falling apart, as horrible as the, the bane of all society. So, so that's the first place I have to start. That doesn't mean there isn't room to improve, but in every school there's room to improve. The other thing I would suggest is, I would suggest people start about improving people within their school versus worrying about things like society today, or their state legislature, or the governor, and I'm not picking on any state at all, I'm talking about this in general, our parents, our participation trophies, or whatever the next nonsensical thing is, because your ability to influence parents is so much less than your ability to influence the adults that are teaching in that school. I would suggest we start with the thing we have the most ability to impact instead of starting with something that is much farther down the road, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think that's well-spoken. And, and we talk also on this podcast about the fact that we know that there are great schools out there doing amazing things every day. There are some marvelous teachers and school leaders, and, and we'll continue to, to highlight uh, those folks and shine a spotlight on those people. Uh, but as we think about great teachers. Um, you know, I remember, again, as a superintendent, we get close to the start of another school year, and it's time to assign children into different classes. Maybe you have five or six sections of first grade. Everybody wants Mrs. Jones because Mrs. Jones is the best teacher in the school. Nobody wants Mrs. Smith, and those are the phone calls I get. Whatever you do, Dr. Goins, do not let my kid 
end up with with Mrs. Smith for the upcoming school year. So right. the, the impact of the great and and those that you know need a lot of help is really significant. I've even heard you say that the gap between great teachers and poor teachers is huge. Right. And between great principals and poor principals and between great superintendents and poor superintendents and between great waiters and waitresses and poor waiters and waitresses. I mean, it, it's the world. It's a talent difference. But I want us to think about this. If I'm an effective administrator, I'm not responding because I'm getting parent phone calls. I'm responding because those kids don't have a chance in this classroom or they're so much more disadvantaged. Just think about, you talk about leading school change. What if at the very least we started with being able to get the first grade teachers in each other's classrooms in a non-judgmental, non-evaluative way? Greg, nobody ever steals a worse idea. Nobody listens to your podcast and goes, I don't think that'll work as well as what I do, but I'm going to go ahead and give it a try. Nobody does that. We only steal better ideas. And what we have to do is we have to think about this. Why don't we go in each other's classrooms? We're afraid. We're afraid of being revealed. You know, we're afraid of, we all have the imposter syndrome to some degree. We're afraid of people being critical. And so what you do, and this is where leading school change, if you've read the book, comes into play, is that you start at the points of least resistance, not most resistance. I don't start with my best teacher and my worst teacher at first grade. I start with my best teacher and the new teacher at first grade. The new teacher during an interview, I talk about, would you go in and observe other teachers? The new teacher wants a job in my school. They go, sure, I'd be happy to. And think about the best teacher. We have a new teacher. Would you mind if they came into your classroom and kind of stole ideas and you go into their classroom so it can be like a mutual exchange so your peers, you're not one above the other. Your best teacher is going to be willing to do that. And it's less scary to them than a veteran teacher because it's a new teacher coming in. The new teacher doesn't know any better. Now we've started with two of your six first grade teachers. Now, I don't go to the most resistant third, first grade teacher. I go to the next most cooperative, the next most willing first grade teacher. And I say, this new teacher has heard wonderful things about your math, math lessons, which is the thing they have the most confidence about. Would you care if they came in and observed your math lesson? Well, that teacher's not nearly as afraid because it's a new teacher and it's their best subject. So do you see how we start this way instead of, and, and, and understand, I'm an impatient person. I'm not talking about over a six-year period. I'm talking about over a two-month period. But I've got to start so the first exposure is successful. That new teacher and best teacher, they're going to both say good things about each other. They're going to feel good about it. They're going to feel better. They're more willing to have somebody else that isn't scary come into their classroom and then go into somebody else's classroom that doesn't scare them. And that's one of the ways. There's a lot of them, but that's an example of one way we start but we have to think about who do we start with, and typically it's our best people and our new people. And, and that's great. And I've also heard you talk about uh, the importance of teachers visiting other classrooms and to learn from other great teachers. And, and you know, I, I'll just say steal their ideas because sure. that's, that's the bottom line. And, you know, you're, you're on Twitter a lot, as, as I am, and there's uh, hashtag observe me. So that's kind of a, a movement that's picking up steam. Uh, there are pineapple charts that, you know, there are a lot of different ways you can go about making that happen. But I, I heard you talk about, you know, why not in the interview, you know, ask the candidate the question. If you had the opportunity to, to step into someone else's room and, and watch a great teacher at work, wouldn't that be an incredible experience? And then when you hire that person, the expectation is there. And they'll, ultimately, they're going to come to you and say, hey, Dr. Whitaker, when do we get to do that? That's a great idea. That's far different approach than, 
you know, sending out an email or having a staff meeting and say, all right, guys, we're going to start walking around, popping in and out of each other's rooms this year. Right. Now, it's having an envision in advance. Induction of new teachers starts during the interview. It doesn't start once they've been hired. But I, but I, I want people who are listening to, to be aware, none of this is related to teachers. It's related to the world. How do we get principals to go to each other's faculty meetings? You know, great principals, without exception, have faculty meetings teachers look forward to and value. Well, the biggest disadvantage a principal has is they've never worked with a great principal. How do you even know what great faculty meetings look like? How do you know how to make them valued? How do you do this? If you've worked with one great principal, in the meantime, you could at least do what they did. You know, while you're figuring out how to, what does my school need and how do I bring my own personality in. But in the meantime, you know one thing that works. Well, if I'm a superintendent, I've got to get principals in each other's faculty meetings. Now, again, I'm not going to limit this to my own district. If they, you know, I could, because I could be in a smaller district with five principals and maybe none of them really are effective at faculty meetings. And I, I don't mean that mean. But there's got to be a principal somewhere within driving distance and asking them, could two principals come over and have a chance to be at your faculty meetings? Could, and, and think about how quickly you do that. If you know, you said you mentioned you're a former superintendent. Think about board relations and the board meetings, and sometimes that can be a challenge. But if you've seen a truly outstanding superintendent, your ability to emulate them is potentially much greater than your ability to come up with this on your own. And so it's that same thing. Nothing changes. It's, it's all the same. And it's always been like this. You know, 30 years ago, if the teachers had gone into each other's classrooms, the teachers would have become more like the best teachers. 30 years from now, whatever the classrooms look like, if they go into class, teachers will become more like the best teachers. Um, it's sort of like parenting. One of the things that's so tough is the only thing you know is how you were raised and your family. You, don't, you didn't get a chance to go in and see other people and how they handle discipline and how they approach this and how they talk to their kids. And it's a huge disadvantage. And then we're on our own to figure it out. And remember, the people that can figure it out on their own have already figured it out on their own. Yeah. And I think about my own personal experience. Uh, I, I was actually a second generation school superintendent. My father was a superintendent in Illinois for many years. And my mother's also a retired teacher. So we had that. Uh, I had that to fall back on. And I and I think if I wouldn't have had those opportunities, you know, we sat around the dinner table. We talked about school. We right. talked about school business. We talked about education. And that's just was normal for me. But I also think about something like assigning student teachers. And if we're not putting student teachers with the very best teacher in that school, then we're doing them a huge disservice. And we're going to have to come back and go to number two. We're going to have to improve the ones we've got if we don't put them in a position to be successful right off the bat. Sure, exactly. And so often student teachers are assigned by convenience, a rotation, whose turn it is. Um, the same way in terms of we do mentors, oftentimes it's convenience who has the same plan time. This, I want you to think of one other little example about principals going in classrooms. I mentioned my daughters and I wrote a book called Your First Year for First Year Teachers. We co-keynoted the National Principals Conference in Washington, D.C. I believe it was two summers ago. I could be incorrect. It could be three, but it, I think it was two summers ago. We asked how many of our principals were at the National Principals Conference. And these are people that are at the National Principals Conference. So, you know, they're interested in growing, interested in staff development, self-development. We asked them, when do you think new teachers want principals in their classroom? The number one response from principals was never. The number two response from principals were, was four to six weeks after they settle in. I've asked literally thousands and thousands of new teachers, when do you want principals into your classroom? Do you know what the answer is? 
the first half of the first minute of the first day. I want to be great, and I don't know if I'm great. You know what teachers realize? It's lonely in here. Teaching is the most isolated profession, and you're never alone, which is incredibly ironic when you think of it that way. They want the principal in there. I, if I'm great, let me know. If I'm not, steer me that way. That's why I got into education. I want to be that teacher that inspired me to be in education, and I don't know if I'm doing it. And I'd like you, and the principals don't go in because they're afraid. But think about this then. You talk about a, a weird dynamic. If you're a principal and you haven't gone into a new teacher's classroom for six weeks and then you go in, you know what they wonder? What did I do wrong? And where'd they learn that from? They learned it from you. They didn't learn that student teaching. They learned that in your school from you. And I think that's so important to understand the importance of that's an example of establishing expectations versus trying to correct behaviors. And, and that kind of takes me to, to the last point I want to discuss. You talk a lot about school culture. You have a great book, School Culture Rewired. Uh, your buddy Jimmy Costas is the author of Culture Eyes, which has had a lot of success. So there's a lot of discussion now, which I think is a great thing about improving school culture, which obviously is very important. And the experts say it takes three to five to seven years for any kind of significant change or movement. And you tell the story about uh, if you put the right person in the right situation, school culture is something that can move very quickly. Zero question about that. Um, I always say when people say it takes three to five to seven years, what they're saying is I don't know how, and I hope you forget. Um, well, the thing I'd like us to do is I would like us typically when we talk about culture, I'd like us to substitute the word leadership. You want to improve school culture, you better improve school leadership. That's really what it is that comes down to it. Everything's always the leader. Everything that's good in the school, it's leadership. Everything that's bad in the school, it's leadership. And this isn't taking away the power of the teachers. The same way in a classroom. Everything that's good in a classroom is leadership, meaning the teacher leadership in that classroom. Everything that's bad in the classroom is the teacher leadership. And once we realize that, but I want us to think about this related to culture. If you, if you change today, you've changed the climate. Okay. If today we decide today as a school, we're going to treat every student with respect and dignity. That day you've changed the climate. If you never stop doing that, you change the culture. And what day it moved from climate to culture is really irrelevant, isn't it? Because in the meantime, the students benefit from that structure, benefit from that environment we've set up. And I think we have to realize that what happens is, and we've learned this, it's, it's funny, we just did a bunch of stuff. That we've, uh, my girls and I have written a book on classroom management, and I'm not a book salesman. I'm just talking about it because this is where the idea came. The number one thing people struggle with classroom management is consistency. If you want to change your culture, do you know the biggest challenge you're going to face is consistency. It isn't doing things three days a week, four days a week, doing it right up until uh, the end of the first semester and then I get tired. It's doing it every single day. And when you do that, it does infuse into the culture. And that's really the power. And it's really having, and realize that's the strength of the leader to be able to do that on a regular basis, be able to influence other people to do this on a regular basis, be able to help people understand how it'll benefit all of us if we do this on a regular basis, and then consistently doing it. So it really is leadership. We just disguise it, in my opinion, as the word culture. Of all the books you've written, do you have a favorite or is there one that you feel has had a, a greater impact maybe than some of the others? Um, probably the book for me that is closest to my being is what great principles do differently. It's, it's, to me, it's really my core belief system and sort of to some degrees, everything else stemmed off that. I wrote that book and then I had from so many principles that wanted me to write 
a book like that for their teachers. You know, that they, they, that your teachers can read what great principles do differently, but if it's more addressed to the specific audience, it can have more power. Um, I, uh, one of my books is dealing with difficult teachers because I realized that in a school, if there is a negative or a teacher that's impacting the culture and or the students, if we don't do anything about them, it, it sucks the life out of the whole school. The good people want you to deal with them. They just want you to deal with them in a professional, respectful manner. Dealing with difficult parents is the same thing. Once I teach people the language to use, they're willing to do it. But for me, my real core is what great principles do differently and everything else kind of stems from that. And I can't, again, I can't thank you enough for being here. It's been a great conversation. The time just flies by. I could talk with you all day. But as you kind of think about what's next for you, I know your wheels are always turning. What project are you working on? What's the next big thing um, in the horizon for Dr. Todd Whitaker? Um, a, a couple of things. One of them is uh, I, with Danny Steele, who's well known in the Twitter verse world, he and I have just finished two books called uh, The Essential Truths for Teachers and The Essential Truths for Principals. And what we're trying to do is write things that are timeless, right? I don't want to do something that uses initials that's going to be gone away in two years. The other thing that I'm really framing up and I presented on this a lot and I'm working on is how to get all the teachers to be like the best teachers. Because in my mind, that's the only solution to education I can think of. And I present on it a lot, but that's how I come up with my writing. I present, does this make sense? Am I explaining it correctly? Does the audience get it? Can they apply it now in their setting? And so that's probably the thing that's the, the nearest thing to my core is how to get all teachers to be like the best teachers. And I really think we can do it and they want to be good. And the reason that's the solution to education in my mind, in every school, at least one teacher's cracked the Da Vinci Code. And they've done it with the same resources as all the other teachers. They've done it with the same students as all the other teachers. They've done it with the same leadership. So it is possible in every school to be able to do that. So if we can get all the people in a school to become more like that person, we potentially could increase this, the uh, success rate for our students in our school exponentially. I, I shared this the other day on a, I think it was a, a webinar or something, I don't remember. Um, and somebody had a thing on how do we increase parental involvement in schools and there was a Twitter chat and there was all these ideas and I didn't understand them. They were all much more complicated than I am because I'm a simple minded guy. But I said, if you want to have great parental relations with schools, why don't we make sure every student has a really good teacher? If your child has a really good teacher, you have great relations with that school. And if your child doesn't have a good teacher, you can't have great relations with that school. And to pretend you can, we're just kidding ourselves. And that's, a, that's where it all has to start. That's where the whole, it's people, it's not programs, has always stemmed from, because that's the only way I can see to improving any organization or anything we do. And it's just education so important. We've got to be good at it. So again, folks, be sure to follow Dr. Todd Whitaker at Todd Whitaker on Twitter. You'll also find him once in a while popping in and out of Twitter chats. He's very active on Twitter. And uh, if you're not on Twitter, I know, Todd, you're a huge advocate for, for using Twitter uh, as a professional learning tool. Uh, you want to jump on and, and participate and share those great ideas. Uh, if you're, uh, whether you're a great teacher or whether you're just starting out and hope to get there someday, it's, it's a great place to be. And I know you're a strong advocate for that. Uh, Twitter allows the knowledge of one to become the knowledge of all. And I guarantee you this, somewhere, somebody has solved the problem you've got. So rather than coming up with a solution yourself, you might as well find them. It's going to be a lot easier. Well, thank you, sir. Once again, I can't uh, thank you enough for being here. Uh, and I wish you safe travels and happy holidays as we approach 2019. It's a treat for me. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it.
All right. So that was Todd Whitaker. So again, be sure to follow him on social media and visit the website, toddwhitaker.com. Any of those books would be a great uh, Christmas present for the educator in your life. And as always, folks, I want to thank you for listening to the Reimagined Schools podcast. And as always, folks, do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids. Thank you for listening to the Reimagined Schools podcast with Dr. Greg Goins. Be sure to continue the conversation on social media with the Reimagined Schools hashtag and subscribe to the podcast at reimaginedschools.net. You can also help support this podcast by clicking on the listener support link and making a small monthly contribution. Contact Dr. Greg Goins today to invite him to speak or present at your next education conference or professional development day. Please send inquiries to drgreggoins at gmail.com or on Twitter at drgreggoins.